As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So our last few videos have been a bit doom and gloom, and I just don't feel like talking about another impending crisis this week. So let's fall back on the trusty old Economics Explained emergency content supply by throwing a dart at the map of the world and talking about a national economy. That should be a little bit more upbeat, right? Oh boy. This is Spain, the fourth largest economy in the Eurozone, which up until recently has been an unlikely champion of sustained growth in the region. On the surface, Spain has a lot of the credentials that we would like to see in a solid advanced economy. A strong tourism industry, a healthy portfolio of multinational corporations, a relatively stable system of government, and a geographical position in the world that is extremely peaceful and accessible to other prosperous countries to do business with. But unfortunately, there might be some major factors that are holding this country back from truly being able to capitalise on these advantages. Spain was one of the hardest hit nations in the fallout of the 2008 global financial crisis, and today it has again been hit particularly hard by the fallout of the coronavirus, both directly as a health crisis and indirectly as an economic crisis. This hit came just as the nation was finding its feet again, only this time it could genuinely be a more precarious financial situation, with much more debt and much less options available to them today than back 13 years ago. Spain could genuinely be the country to watch in the next few years, as it has the potential to be an engine room of growth in Europe or a major liability rivaling that of Greece in the early 2010s. But to properly be able to understand this economic crystal ball, you need to as always know about a few important things. How does Spain manage its economic affairs in a way that is distinct from almost every other country in the world? What can Spain's economic woes teach us about the strengths and weaknesses of a decentralised government? How is it able to recover from those woes in recent years? And what might be stopping it from pulling the same sort of recovery this time around? Oh, and of course, once we understand all of that, we will as always put Spain on the Economics Explained national leaderboard. To look at the economy of Spain as a national economy is actually a bit counterproductive because it really is best understood as a collection of autonomous regions that just also happen to fall under the same flag, and that really isn't too much of an exaggeration. Federations, or countries that are made up of separately governed states, are nothing new. Statistically speaking, you are watching this video from such a nation, be it Australia, Canada, India, Switzerland, or yes of course, the United States of America. Economically speaking, such systems actually have some pretty significant advantages over unitary states that are governed by a central federal authority exclusively. Take the US for example. 
State budgets allow individual regions to account for the needs of their region without having to consider the broader implications of the whole nation. California could probably do with some policies to encourage affordable housing development, but a similar policy in North Dakota would be a huge waste of time at best or a huge waste of money at worst. Dividing up a nation also allows constituents to vote on multiple issues at every level. Someone may love a Republican governor's policy and vision for their state, but prefer a Democratic president dealing with monetary issues and trade deals. Or of course, before you get angry in the comments, the exact opposite may be true. There is also something to be said for these types of nations being more stable, because there are many layers of authority and responsibility that go into running such a nation. And I don't just mean that in the sense of, oh, America's capital city is harder to invade because there's 50 of them, but more so that some states will fall in hard times while others are experiencing good times and vice versa. Ultimately, this diversification means that there is more stability built into their political, economic, and yeah, I suppose even diplomatic systems. In nations as large and diverse as pretty much all of the federal states in the world today, having this regional independence does really make sense. But it's not all good news. As with anything, there are some trade-offs. One of the biggest and most topical of these trade-offs is the natural tendency for these semi-independent states to compete with each other for talented workers and productive businesses. We saw this play out when Amazon was shopping around for a state to set up its second global headquarters in. An Amazon head office brings with it thousands of very high-paying jobs. So, naturally, states wanted this in their backyard. In order to encourage Amazon to choose their state, multiple governments were competing with one another to offer tax concessions to a private company all within the same country. This kind of natural competition extends beyond just courting obvious Lex Luthor impersonators too. We explored in a previous video on this channel that California's high state income taxes were pushing high earners out of the state and into other states with no income tax, like Nevada and Texas. This creates a situation where the most sustainable system of government will lose out to competing policies that just attract valuable workers and businesses by giving them money. Now you'll ask, what does this all have to do with Spain? The particularly astute amongst you might even be halfway through typing out a comment saying, actually, Spain isn't even a federation, it's a unitary state. Which is technically correct, but this is more so because of a failure of definitions, more so than it is the reality on the ground in Spain. You see, to be counted as a federation, the country itself needed to be formed by pre-existing states that came together to make one unified nation, whereas Spain has been a country for a really, really long time, and this regional independence thing was only really introduced in 1978 after the fall of the Francoist dictatorship, which had plagued the nation for over 35 years beforehand. This decentralised model was set up for many reasons, but a big one was to avoid the kind of concentration of national power that led to this dictatorship in the first place. Either way, what the Spanish regions lack in technical terminology, they more than make up for in independence. States' rights are a big deal in the US, but they have absolutely nothing on the autonomous regions of Spain. Some of these regions truly do see themselves as totally independent entities, to the point where people will identify as being from the Basque country rather than being from Spain. These regions are also led by presidents rather than governors or premiers like in typical federations. Of course, that's just a title and the roles themselves are pretty similar, but it does still show you the power that these local regions wield. 
This extreme level of independence also extends to their economies, which of course it does, and that's why we're here, right? Comparing this back to the US again, even the states with the highest income taxes in America will only be collecting and utilising about 15% of total individual tax revenue. That's on the high side, because of course it can be as low as 0% in certain states. In Spain, taxes are collected centrally, but 50% of this tax revenue is then handed back to these regions. Now, I don't want to go too far into the political science side of this debate, but purely in terms of the economy, this regional independence has probably pushed the balance of responsibility and authority too far beyond the point where there are tangible benefits like the ones that we were exploring earlier, and really only acts to create a lot of frictions in the way that the government was run. The classic example of this was what created the housing bubble in the lead up to 2008. The early 2000s were a great time for a lot of economies, and Spain was no exception. It had successfully adopted the euro and had almost entirely shed its image as the home of a dictatorship. This meant that tourism and trade were booming as everyone from Germany to the UK fled their cold cities to laze on a beach under the Spanish sun. This had led to somewhat of a development boom in the country. Hundreds of companies had been established that were all attempting to find the next tourist hotspot or gentrified township to build massive property developments on top of. This building craze was accelerated by the adoption of the Euro, which meant that these developers could now access credit markets all across Europe rather than those purely denoted in their own local currency. To add fuel to the fire, this craze was encouraged and in many ways actively supported by these local governments. Why? Well, for three reasons. The first was that building tourist infrastructure or new living centres did work to genuinely improve the quality of life for the people that they represented. But probably more importantly than that, it was a great job creator. The building industry is a huge employer in most growing nations for a number of key reasons. For starters, it's almost impossible to outsource. You can't build a house in China and then overnight ship it to Spain, for example. It's also very hard to automate. There have certainly been improvements and advancements over the years, but construction jobs are highly variable, which makes it infeasible to set up automated systems which tend to thrive in very repetitive and highly predictable tasks. In the world today, most frames are put up, bricks laid, pipe plumbed and cables wired by hand. Despite being physically demanding, these are normally still good paying, skilled jobs that can serve as the foundation for a healthy economy. What's more is that even if these builders demand higher and higher wages, most people in the wider economy don't care too much because it just means houses are more expensive to build, making their already built houses more valuable. There was fierce competition between the autonomous regions within Spain to create the hottest housing and construction markets. More jobs, more investments and more opportunities to make lots and lots of money. Which leads us on to the third reason. People stood to make lots of money. And first in line to collect this money was the local politicians who had oversight and early knowledge of where future opportunities would be and also just had vested interests in making their own portfolios more valuable. By the time 2008 came rolling around, Spain was one of the most indebted nations in the world, with one of the most heated real estate markets on the planet. Needless to say, the subsequent crash hit the nation hard, and regions not only lost huge values in their own investments, but also their largest employment industry all in one fell swoop. Unemployment in the nation spiked to over 25%, 
meaning that one in four was out of a job, which is simply unheard of in most developed nations. At this point, it would not be unreasonable to expect that Spain would just crumble into a failed state, but it did still have one thing going for it. Sure, it had a lot of debt, but that was almost entirely private sector debt. The national government actually had a debt-to-GDP ratio, almost half of that of the USA at the time. Why was this the case? Well, remember, up until this point, the regional governments basically ran their own show, and sure, they were massively in debt, but the Spanish government itself was able to take a bit of a back seat and be a little bit more responsible with its spending. This is almost the opposite of what happens today in the US, with some states maintaining a budget surplus while the federal government runs massive deficits. What this strange relationship allowed Spain to do was oversee a controlled demolition of these once sacred industries rather than just letting them straight up explode. Sure, unemployment was high, but government policies meant that people out of work did not have to worry about falling into absolute poverty. Banks were failing, but the Spanish government had the cash it needed to keep the system operating, a luxury that was not available to everybody in Europe. Of course, this still caused problems. As we saw in our last video, extremely high levels of unemployment drive down wages because why would you bother paying your employees well when there are millions of people desperately looking for work that will do the job for a lot less? This caused a lot of Spain's more highly skilled workers to move abroad to find more lucrative employment opportunities. This was something that was surprisingly easy for them to do, given Spain's interesting relationship with the world. Joining the European Union has overwhelmingly been a positive decision for Spain, but it does have its drawbacks. The free exchange of labour across borders has meant that highly skilled Spanish citizens can easily move abroad to countries like France, Germany, the Netherlands and up until recently the UK, where their skills will be more lucratively compensated. This close relationship status does not extend just to the EU either. It's not considered as often in the modern day, but Spain was once a major colonial power just the same as the UK, and just like the UK with the Commonwealth, Spain has worked to maintain these relationships with organisations like the OEI, or Organisation of Ibero-American States. The, uh, the acronym doesn't work in English. Anyway, this organisation is headquartered in Spain and looks to create a sense of unity between Spanish and Portuguese-speaking nations all across the world. Doesn't always work out, of course, but it is there, and it does mean that Spain is surprisingly well connected to a lot of countries across the globe. In fact, Spain is equally recognised by the World Bank as the easiest country to trade with, due partly to its geography, but primarily thanks to the relationships it has fostered all across the world. But this comes at a price, and it might be something that's going to be paid in the recovery from COVID. Spain, as with many European nations, was particularly hard hit by the early waves of the coronavirus and continues to struggle with the pandemic to this day. To date, it is one of the most heavily impacted advanced nations in the world. This was a real problem for Spain because, unlike in the early 2000s, its economy had slowly shifted to be reliant on tourism and trade. So, yet again, it had bet big on the worst possible industries to be in at the worst possible time. Now, unlike in 2008, the Spanish government may not have the same financial firepower and reserve because the growth of the past decade has come at the expense of running up the national debt. 
In hindsight, this still was the right call to make, especially as debt within the EU has been extremely cheap over these years, but it does mean that things could get bad a lot faster this time around. The supply of the euro has not grown nearly as fast as the supply of the US dollar as the Central Bank of Europe has to work with the requirements of all member states, some of whom do not support the same monetary stimulus efforts that have been fueling the recovery in the US. This means that individual nations will need to be careful about how much debt they take on because they won't have the luxury of printing their way out of trouble should the need arise. Today, Spain finds itself between a rock and a hard place. On one side, it is beholden to the whim of domestic autonomous zones that wield a huge amount of power, and on the other hand, it is at the mercy of policies created by international organisations outside of its direct control. This power sandwich gives the government of the nation very little room to manoeuvre at a time where being able to react quickly and decisively has never been more important. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.